0: Hello and welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. As I record this, it's been just about exactly a month since the JP Morgan conference in San Francisco. When you hear this, it'll be more like two months, but it's a good time to assess some of the vibes and predictions there about the 2024 uh, deal-making and M&A environment. So to help me do that, I've got Cody Powers, Principal of portfolio and business development at ZS Associates, and we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, pharma M&A landscape. Welcome to the show, Cody.
1: Hi, Jonah. Thanks for having me.
0: So first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself um, and the work you do at at ZS. I lead our portfolio and business
1: development practice at ZS. Uh, So the two sides of the equation, the portfolio side, what companies uh, plan to invest in. So that could be therapeutic categories, technology. Uh, both uh, internal and external to the company. Uh, And then second, uh, the BD front. So that could be on the buy side or sell side, both the upstream strategy component and the downstream diligence screening and uh, and integration. Um, I think in terms of the types of customers we serve, we we serve large pharma, mid-sized pharma, smaller pharma, development stage pharma, as well as uh, the financial sponsors, so private equity, hedge funds, and so forth.
0: And you were in San Francisco last month too, right? Getting the lay of the land a little bit.
1: Yeah, the, the conference is a great way to kick off the year every year. Obviously, there's a, a great opportunity just to connect with a lot of folks from across the industry, just given the bolus of people who are there and kind of kickstart your year on what, what trends people are thinking out front and center.
0: So we had kind of a bevy of deals before the conference. There were two, two or three in in December that kind of got us thinking, oh, wow, maybe this is going to be... A little more of an exciting JPM than we expected, and then at, at the conference there were several more announced, um. But mostly, with a few exceptions, they were sort of one to two billion, sub one billion, so so not huge deals, um. But it did still seem to really create a very positive vibe in terms of wow, maybe deal making is kind of coming back this year. So, what's your take on on all that? Like, what did what did you see in in the deals that were announced and what, what do you kind of think they portend and has your take changed at all um, in, the, in the last month?
1: Yeah, if so you kind of play out year over year, usually the deals that gather the greatest headlines, uh, deals that are 30, 40 billion. You know, you, in a good year, you have two of them. So they tend to be relatively infrequent and because they're um, so visible, even if they are infrequent, people tend to correlate overall deal making environment with whether or not one of those has been recently announced. but in in truth if you look at uh, years that I think people would call hallmark years in the industry so for example like 2014 2015 period was a significant spike um, just as much as part of the story are the one to two to three billion dollar deals that are much more of the the majority of deal making from at least in terms of things that get press coverage. So I think in terms of the last couple of months uh, kind of correlating, with the overall bull market run that's happened in the biopharma sector, that there's been a large increase versus, say, the prior six months in the number of, say, sub-$5 billion deals. Certainly some more attention-grabbing headline ones that we can talk about that are above that mark, but I think over the last uh, month or two, yeah, there's been a steady diet of these $1 to $2 billion and under deals that are much more consistent predictors of overall M&A environment.
0: So... What are the headwinds leading up to this? I, I heard a few things I can certainly give you my take, but I'd I'd love to get yours fresh and then <laughs> you probably read my column anyway so
1: yeah the uh, this is kind of the ultimate combination of Lear underlying economic forces but also overall market psychology essentially uh, bearing out a result that people inherently already. And so therefore, like perception is reality. That's maybe a complicated way of expressing it. So over the last couple of years, as people were very much in batten down the hatches mode, as funding started to dry up, starting at uh, both private capital and then eventually in the IPO and SEO market as well, that uh, that kind of spilled over into the m arena. If, if people are trying to manage their own house, usually m activity is not really at the top of the agenda. But now that we've been through a couple of years um, and It's not like any of the particular pipeline or IRA or fill in the blank revenue drop challenges that essentially uh, any large cap barba is trying to mitigate against right now. That eventually the, the forces at play shift and that they shift back to buying again to offset potential revenue loss or any potential portfolio gaps or pipeline holes. I think that's what's been playing out the last few months, that a lot of these gaps that people have kind of known are coming. They've eventually just gotten to a point where they feel like they have to act, even though the prior two years, they were probably aware of that. They just didn't feel like they had the ability to act at the time.
0: Yeah. So there's almost a little bit of kind of pent up demand and just as much supply in terms of companies that are that are available here for or on the market. Uh, I guess any company on the market for the right price, but uh, and and I, I hear this term dry powder too, like the, the pharma companies have been you know they they have been either saving up or you know or they've just had had good years. They've got the the money to invest in some of these deals.
1: Yeah, the, the dry powder concept obviously is important just for measuring the industry's propensity to go out and spend. I think it's just as important now for measuring, frankly, cross industry, a willingness of investors to continue investing. Um, it's not usually been the case that most of the life science and healthcare world has had to make an argument for continued investment vis-a-vis other uh, sectors just based on growth of the last, say, two decades. But, you know, when the NASDAQ biotech index kind of consistently goes down for two years, you start to start uh, making that uh, that argument. So, uh, in fact, if you kind of look at that, that split between large cap and development stage companies, it's even more pronounced, right? A lot of the development stage companies are any harder hit. So if you look at it from that perspective, a lot of the capital that people are redeploying, there's a sense of angst of if I don't, start using it and start generating the returns then there's a degree of impatience either at the individual company level certainly at the sector level and that if there are other industries where the returns even look comparable yeah then the money it's no longer a question of money that's been walled off to just say the life sciences or biopharma sector but also money that can just as easily move into the tech sector or media cetera.
0: yeah that's a good point and and maybe a slightly obvious point to make but a good one is that is that Deal making does does not happen in a vacuum. It affects all the other aspects of of this kind of market, including willingness to invest. Right, if 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 more exits are happening, then investors want to get more money in because it it's an opportunity there. Whereas if if fewer exits are happening, investors might sort of be be more cautious or or more stingy. Right.
1: Yeah, no better I think um, sign of that than even just the IPO window. You know, if you look at private capital rounds, obviously, uh, it's been challenging over the last couple of years. And in fact, the, the aggregate trend has been uh, rich get richer, if you will. So there are uh, fewer deals, but those the average per deal has gone up. So this in terms of how even the money flows into that arena is material because it essentially decides how many IPOs we're going to get, even when things is, quote unquote, turn around. So if you look now, we're finally starting to see evidence of people dipping their toes back into the IPO water. I think that was a major outcome of JP Morgan, a couple of companies essentially coming forward with potential Q1 IPOs. So I think that's probably even a bigger reason for optimism, frankly, in my mind, more than even the M&A sector, just because IPOs are essentially a lot of the fuel for the industry, right? The, the financing that essentially makes more targets available late stage has to start somewhere and the IPOs are often... A, biggest source of that for some of the headline companies, at least that people pay closest attention to.
0: What were some notable IPOs that we heard about at the show or potential okay. IPOs?
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't want to speculate on individual companies per se, but what I can say, if you look at the, the, the ones that are announcing, um, One, you have a couple of different camps. One, you have ones that are in traditional blue blood spaces that people will always have interest in. So particular oncology therapeutics that have novel mechanisms will always be of interest. Um, I think one that I'm uh, very interested to see more of or whether or not there would be more of, uh, companies pivoting very quickly on the basis of two major trends, ADC deals and frankly, GLP-1 deals. I mean, I think right now, if you're in those spaces, now is kind of the time to strike. So I think I'm, I'm curious the extent to which people may, maybe they don't feel like the market is totally healed, quote unquote, but that maybe there are a couple of companies who end up making the push if they're in one of those arenas that obviously gets a tremendous amount of press now just because they they know their window could be not forever. They may have a very finite period of time here to capitalize on the market.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a risky situation to be in, right? Because The spaces that are getting a lot of buzz and a lot of press are also probably the spaces where there'll be a lot of competition right i mean i think glp1 is is a good example of a huge huge potential um but like not not everyone is is going to succeed there right
1: yeah i think on the glp1 um side one thing that's important to keep in mind, the underlying science, we're only at the beginning of the discovery. One, even in its applications to where it is currently used in diabetes, obesity, broader cardiometabolic, you know, we just had, uh, for example, MASH data from Lilly read out this week. Um, But I think the other half of it and why I think the space is so interesting is that that same mechanism has the deep underpinnings in other parts of science, you know, has a tremendous amount of, for example, psych use potentially. So you've heard uh, some of the, players in the space right now talking about its applications in depression and so forth uh you have people talking about it for smoking succession and alcoholism and maybe those spaces right now people view them as dormant as they've been for many years now but once upon a time obesity was also a dormant space you know so i think yeah. that's that's part of the, the lottery ticket effect i think that a lot of people have almost bought into in gop1 that um a it's not even clear if we really have the optimal mechanism is fully identified yet. Even amongst diabetes and obesity, obviously, you've heard, for example, Amgen talking about muscle preservation being their key goal uh, rather than just weight loss. But that I think that if it explodes in Alzheimer's or something else, that you know people want the ability to kind of diverge from the pack and not do the same indication sequence.
0: So let's back up a little bit and talk about the this from an from an indications standpoint um you know talking about the the mna as well as well as the ipos what what are kind of from from where you're sitting what are the hot areas what are the areas we should be looking closely at and and do you think there's any that are maybe a little overblown or a little played out
1: uh yeah there 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 it's always a kind of a lens of would a, would a company look at the particular investment as i think it's so big that i can't miss And that they would rather buy essentially an insurance policy and that if something does explode, that they have an option versus that they're just out left in the cold. Uh, And in that situation, oftentimes what can happen is that you end up with a market that's so crowded that it becomes very, very difficult to differentiate. So um, even in the if you take like the ADC pipeline or GOP-1 pipeline, for example, uh, I think everybody who is investing in that pipeline knows that that the race effect is such that – even in the ADC world, there, there probably isn't space for everybody if everybody were successful. So there is a, essentially a need to differentiate 52 ADC deals last year, something something like that, just on the basis of how crowded that market could become. Uh, what you've started to see now in the ADC market is it become a little bit different than maybe the PD-1 race. In the PD-1 race, you had a couple of tumor types, for example, that everybody rushed into as like, this is going to be the big market. And then you had certain ones that related to market where just the, you know, effectively got squeezed out because the people who were first essentially became dominant players versus I think a lot of the ADC market. Now you see people learning maybe from that PD-1 experience, you see it much more carefully sliced up, if you will, into smaller pieces where people are trying to find their particular pocket to play in as opposed to trying to be everything to everyone or go after the same spaces as everybody else, just by virtue of they don't want to, get in a situation where they're maybe akin to the PD1 situation, squeezed out by being fourth or fifth of the game.
0: Interesting. Um let's so we have I'm just looking at the time. Let's talk about some particular deals. You mentioned earlier, you know, there there was a smattering of of, you know, a few billion, sub billion deals and that that's a really good indicator of kind of what's going to happen. But there also have been a few bigger ones um that might be worth discussing on their own. So so what do you see, you know, over the last kind of you know, th- this year so far and, and the very end of last year are are the, the big deals, the bigger deals. And, and what do those kind of have to tell us about what we can expect this year, if anything?
1: I think um, maybe if I had to pick out a couple of, of, of areas together, one overarching trend is somewhat like what is old is new. So I'm going to pick out three particular areas. So I, I mentioned ADCs and obesity before. One I'd, I'd add there is the psych space the Karuna and the Seravel deals back to back was I think yeah. pretty momentous because these are, again, uh, these are, it's not like they, these companies didn't have uh, adequate following or press beforehand. There's certainly a lot of people who have been following them for a while. But if you look at the development and frankly revenue trajectory in those particular diseases that those companies are focused on, it's been a flat for a long time. So in terms of the underlying growth here, that essentially you would portend with those particular spaces yeah, that now you have a lot more companies who are interested in vying for these. Uh, maybe in the AbbVie case, obviously they already have presence in that arena; they would they would know it well. But uh, in in BMS's case, obviously they they exited space a uh, long time ago and are coming back in. So I think from that that standpoint, you can see that more and more companies are probably willing to reevaluate their priors and decide, okay, well maybe we made a decision at one point in time to exit should be come back in just the same way that frankly a lot of companies probably made a decision about ADCs a long time ago, just the same way that many companies made decisions to exit obesity a long time ago and are coming back, that you see actually a lot of this deal activity of companies who are willing to come back to spaces. I think looking forward, I would expect to see a lot more of that in the CV metabolic space. Obviously there's a number of years where people basically just associated a lot of C V diseases like a post-LoE cliff. Um, but now through advances in technology, you know, companies like Eln for example, that have uh, made tremendous uh, growth in the space that uh, that people have found that technology essentially has reinvented the space in some ways and that uh, that i think more and more people would probably be revisiting that assumption again
0: let's talk about one elephant in the room um the ftc uh, the, you know we're, we're talking about big deals um and and sort of an excitement about big deals but uh, at the same time um there there's more scrutiny than ever on on pharma deal making especially larger deals um, that we saw last year with CJN and, and stuff like that. So, so what's, um, how, how are people thinking about that? And, and is that causing any hesitancy around doing these deals? Yeah, I think
1: people pay closest attention to the big ones. So for example, the, uh, horizon deal, people paid very close attention to that. That one, the FTC was fairly direct and vocal and their demands on both sides. I think the one that probably is, in my opinion, even more symbolic of the shift in FTC position was the recent Santa Fe collaboration that they essentially declared as anti competitive. So, for those not familiar, Santa Fe had a partnership in Pompeii disease. Um, the FTC essentially intervened and said that you, know, you would have too strong control in Pompeii disease, including their inline pipeline or their other uh, assets already in development. Uh, and so they were essentially forced to break up the, the partnership. So, I think that one is probably even more meaningful because in the and a situation you could imagine that a lot of the argument depends on control. if I can control everything then in theory you know the, so the FTC case goes you know you can trust price you basically don't offer as many options and it's it's all the stuff that uh, Lena Khan and the current regime essentially have been arguing and not just in life sciences but but across industries um, in the case of the Santafi collaboration, it's a co-development relationship. These are not merged companies. They're development partners potentially commercialization partners, but they're not the same company yet. So the FTC intervening, even in the case of, say, two companies collaborating, does pose, I think, bigger challenges for the industry, because particularly in a lot of these rare disease arenas, usually if you're trying to pick out particular rare diseases, there aren't a tremendous number of companies who are investing in every single rare disease, right? We're starting to get more and more spaces where you have multiple companies or entrants. Uh, if you looked at the broader rare disease spectrum, you might have a couple of companies that are focused on a particular rare disease. And generally speaking, those development partners tend to tend to play with the same set of dance partners. So if, if in fact the FTC did continue to go after those kind of co-development relationships, that, that could pose just as much of a challenge my opinion, just if not a bigger challenge versus some of these large headline M&A deals that obviously get the lion's share of FTC uh, attention.
0: Mm, that's an interesting distinction. I mean, are, are there indications that that's, that that's likely, that that's on their radar?
1: I, I think ultimately this is uh, like everything else this year. It does really come down to the politics and who wins out. Um, for a lot of the FTC mandate, or at least what they see as their mandate, the things that they're attempting to change now they need runway so if there is a change in presidential power then presumably it's going to flip i don't know if they would they would stay on so if that is the case then you can imagine maybe this year they're they're trying to obviously legislate their position as much as possible um but uh but going beyond that would really be dependent on the
0: presidential election interesting I've got one more for you, and then I want to kind of ask you if you have any thoughts that we haven't touched on. Um, But we talked a little bit about indications. Um, The the other thing I heard a lot at JPM was about kind of the stage of the company. You know, there's a lot of interest in kind of late late preclinical or clinical, um, stuff that's a little more de-risked and a little more likely to sort of, you know, not be too much of a bet, but more like this is actually going to bolster our pipeline is that is that your sense too? what what um you know what would be kind of your your advice or or your perspective for a company that's a little earlier stage and and maybe looking for either investment or 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 an exit
1: yeah the if you look at from the buy side when you're buying late stage statistically you're usually making a trade-off you're trading off the certainty you're trading off the immediacy In exchange for typically a long run ROI, uh, we do a lot of work uh, analyzing the ROI of deals. And if you look at the broader spectrum over the last 15, 20 years, generally speaking, early stage deals for a buyer, at least amongst mid to large cap pharma, uh, pretty consistently out earn late stage deal ROI. Once upon a time, that was not true. So if you went back 20 years, there are ways to pretty consistently earn out. Uh, strong ROI from late stage deals. But it, at this point, it's kind of all priced in. The market has gotten more competitive for these deals and it's driven them to, not only the the price up of uh, of the companies themselves, but the premiums that are stacked on top. So from that standpoint, going back to your question there, if you're a company who's earlier stage, if you're a company that's preclinical, if you're a company that's uh, phase one, that a lot of the value that a buyer finds in you is you're you're trying to exploit asy- information asymmetries in the market. Right? If they discover you before anybody else does, that you become a potentially attractive investment because you're essentially promising upside. So I think for a lot of these cases where you're being asked, "Look, I need to see more clinical data." Yes, of course that <laughs> that everybody gets exactly what they want and they can they can make those trades. But just the same way that they're looking for clinical data, so are their competitors who are also. Potentially looking at you or are interested in you, so you're you're basically trying to find the ways to make the most promising science available to them and the, in, a, in ways that they believe in the upside argument and try to plant the seeds of well, okay, well, post proof of concept. This is why we feel strongly about a result, and you know, essentially building up your leverage via the other companies, obviously that you may be engaging with. I think that's essentially the the way to both line up your interests where you're trying to rack up more investment, more funding sooner than their interest, which is probably getting up ahead of their competitors who would also be competing for your asset or for your company's services post-poc, post-readout and phase two, whatever the next milestone is.
0: Yeah, I mean, did we, I, I know that there are various ways that through kind of, you know, partnerships, companies will try to get themselves, big farmers will try to get themselves positioned to to be the one to make that buy when that readout happens or when that good data comes in but i mean is that like do we see kind of opportunistic buys off the back of an a exceptionally good sort of like phase two readout or something is that how that plays out
1: yeah you uh anytime that there's a readout say day zero and there's a buy like three days later you know they, they obviously they've been having conversations up to that point or prior to the announcement uh as part of the the, the process you know they if data has not been released publicly then Typically, the company has no right to access and so they have to wait. But usually, in those situations, uh, if a company has basically decided, like, look, this is a good target, we're interested, we think the science is strong, we think the program is promising, we just want to be a little bit more sure. But usually, they are kind of accepting that they're probably going to have to pay a little bit of a premium, but that they want to, essentially, instead of winning on price, they want to win on cutting off competition, you know, they want to essentially get a bid in very quickly after that event. So that is a strategy all by itself. There's so some companies who essentially make a handsome living off of that strategy, you know, who are ones who are typically uh, very active immediately post-ASCO or ASH or pick your, your favorite academic conference. Uh, but in that situation, the principle I mentioned before, that the conversation started well before that, Who knows years, for all intents and purposes, but um, but that they've got all their ducks lined up in a row, and they're just waiting for you know the exact moment when the data drops.
0: So, any other kind of pieces of the puzzle uh, that we haven't discussed yet that you think are, is is important as as we think about this year to come, um, or or particular areas that that are interesting to you for whatever reason?
1: Yeah, I think the the biggest ones, uh, biggest one that I'm personally paying attention to that you started to see relatively consistent talk about from the podium, some of the um, the IRA impact that hasn't quite been fully felt in the deal-making environment. Um, last year was the announcement of the first 10 assets, I'm using assets in quotes because it was, uh, some of them are are multiple things underneath the same active ingredient, but just call them 10 assets for now that will be negotiated against by the government. Um, if you look at the overall deal-making environment, what IRA was announced, number one, number two, when they announced those 10, um, even if there were temporary setbacks, they were quickly more than made up, at least if you look at just global equity indices. So um, now playing it forward, you're trying to find like what is the event when it would start to reverberate backwards and affect the deal-making environment. So, for example, what is the time in which you would see fewer small-molecule deals or small-molecule deals go for smaller than they would have been before? Or what are situations when there are particular uh, investments that are – Predominantly Medicare populations, would, would you start to see more material investment impact? Then, at least according to the data that we look at, we can't really pick out obvious obvious trends where these types of, uh, of transactions or investments uh, have faced any kind of major headwinds versus what the alternative would be. But you, I think I am kind of paying attention to what is that event where, for example, when they announce that they've essentially completed negotiation that of the first ten um, that uh, that people would essentially start to bake it in more actively and alter the choice, And that's not just starting with large cap pharma or mid cap pharma who may be making these investments and for whom the money kind of tr- trickles down through the system. But that's, I think, just as much a question at the starting at the bottom, if you will, with venture capital, you know, a lot of venture capital today is chosen to kind of ride it out and watch what happens and just believe that promising science will always win the day. You know, would you, when would be the moment when, because the, Essentially, the Pac Man effect, the people who are eating further up the chain, that uh, when they decide that they're not willing to invest in something, that, that effect essentially reverberates all the way down the line, during, down to the earliest stages of seed funding and so forth.
0: Do you think it's safe to say that the economic impact of the IRA uh, drug price negotiation provisions, uh, as it was sort of being talked about one JPM ago, did <laughs> 2023, was overblown? Um, or do you think it's more a matter of that the industry sort of is accepting and adapting and and figuring out how to work around it? I have this sense that maybe some of the rhetoric we were hearing in 22 was (laughs) some of the sky is falling rhetoric was more about sort of, uh, you know, messaging and, you know, we want the public to know how upset we are about this because we're still hoping we can get it changed or repealed. It doesn't feel like those kind of doomsday predictions are are coming true
1: well, uh not yet, because they I mean, they have negotiated anything, so yeah I think to your point, maybe maybe it's still in the offing. Uh, I think it would be hard to say that the politics of the moment and that the judicial system in play or judicial cases in play don't play into some of the public communication i mean that's a pretty fair assumption um but if you actually look at the economics, the reasons why it challenges some of pharma's fundamental structure. Number one, if prices are growing faster than inflation, then you can't do that anymore. So uh, essentially, if any drug who's materially affected on the price rebate, so that does change strategy. Uh, But number two, I think particularly in the small molecule situation, if you look at when drugs really generate profits for shareholders, uh, most of the profitability is on the back end. So anything that affects the back end materially affects the outcome so as an example on average you make about half your revenue use zero through nine you make about the other half of your revenue say years 10 to 14 you typically have 14 years to loe um so if the government negotiates your small molecule program at year nine they take off half then it's a pretty big deal in terms of the overall profitability picture you know if they take off yeah half the revenue it's not like your cogs went down. So in terms of the overall aggregate profitability picture, they obviously would have stripped out quite a bit.
0: And it'd take years before you actually see that impact. I mean, obviously you see the the reverberations of it in in, in how people are prioritizing and planning, but it, it would take a long time to actually say, here's what the actual impact of that on farmer revenues was because it's all about the long tail.
1: Exactly. And so you, it turned, presumably in terms of the real bite, look at the first assets that are negotiated down, but the go live day is still a couple of years away. Um, that you might not really see material earnings impact for those you know, four or five years before before it becomes very obvious to everyone. So I think at this point, you know, people are making proactive assumptions based on the bill itself, but also on likelihood of changes, likelihood of judicial Outcomes changing the matter. You know, I know there's a, a bill going around now that I know at least one uh, Democratic House member has signed on to, to try to move the small molecule provision from nine to thirteen. So at this point, there's uh, there's still probably too much in the air for people to fully bake it in. But at least now, because we have the first tenant announced, and there's more happening near term, I think one more, more people are probably starting to to take active decisions rather than wait for the system to decide for them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. I hadn't heard about that bill. Um, I I could see that a change on that level being something that gets through. Of course, trying to predict this Congress is probably <laughs> more foolhardy than trying to predict.
1: <laughs> yeah, do it at, do it at your own peril. I agree.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me Cody. This has been really fun and um, you know, this is a, an area obviously of of great interest to everyone, but uh but one that uh not everyone has expertise in, so I really appreciate you kind of sharing some of your broad impressions and and uh, and I think it's a, it's a fantastic perspective
1: no great uh, speaking with you and thank you for having me
0: that concludes this episode of the PharmaForum Forum podcast you can find more information about this episode including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com podcast the PharmaForum Forum podcast is also available on iTunes Spotify acast Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for PharmaForum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening.